Welcome to the Explore Words Discover Worlds podcast, presented by Bradford Literature Festival. In this episode, we hear from Sebastian Fawkes, one of our greatest writers and author of a string of best-selling books, including Birdsong and Charlotte Grey. Recorded live at the 2023 Bradford Literature Festival, in this episode, Fawkes discusses his work, why he is drawn to wartime stories, and why fiction set during the two world wars continues to resonate with audiences today. Hello everybody and a very warm welcome to Bradford Cathedral. It's lovely to be here in this amazing place. Um, my name is Daniel Hahn and I'm so pleased to have been asked to chair this evening's conversation with Sebastian um, about his newest book, about birdsong, about the, the many things that have happened in between, um, about his writing generally. Um, just so you know, I'm going to introduce him very briefly. We're going to have a nice leisurely chat, which is going to go uh, wherever it goes. I think I'm going to ask you to read a couple of things at some point as, as we talk. But we will, of course, always uh, leave time for you to ask questions in the latter part of our hour. So do have this in mind while you're listening to Sebastian talk. Um, just a very quick introduction. Um, I could, uh, there is quite a lot to say about the gentleman on stage with me. I will just summarize. He's written, I believe it is 19 books so far, including some number one bestsellers. They include nonfiction books like um, The Fatal Englishman, which is an amazing book if you haven't read it. It, has, it remains one of my favorite of Sebastian's books. And uh, 14, I think, novels. I won't name all of them. Novels include, of course, A Green Dolphin Street and Angleby and Charlotte Grey. Human Traces, which might come up in our conversation. Um, which is the first in a sort of loose trilogy, Austrian trilogy, the second of which is Snow Country, which we will talk about, um, and of course a novel called Birdsong, which some of you will know and which I gather did very well and was read by a lot of people, and which I, which is apparently unbelievably 30 years old. Um, which It's almost as old as I am. <laughs> that's amazing. I mean... Well, you, you both look very well on it, is all I can say. Um, I, will, I will ask you a bit about that book, but it seems extraordinary to me that um, I remember it being published, and that, that appalls me slightly. Um, the only other thing I will say about Sebastian is that I ran into Vaz Khan in the green room earlier, and he said you also had a, you put in a great performance playing cricket at the Authors' Eleven on Friday. I feel like this, as a, as a recent achievement, I feel I ought to mention that, that you apparently... It was completely untrue. I mean, Vaz Khan is a lovely guy, but he's a fiction writer. And <laughs> <laughs> I retired from cricket two years ago, and I have cataracts. I couldn't see a thing. Um, it was uh, playing cricket when, you're, when you can no longer play. It's like being asked to write a book with two fingers and a 35-word vocabulary. It was absolutely humiliating and appalling, but... The, my teammates, including Vass, are so nice that you know I, we got through it, and then we get to the pub. Are you saying we don't trust fiction writers? I don't, do you, is, is it not that thing about there's there's a kind of deeper truth to what he was saying? Maybe that's what it is. Fiction is all about the search for a, a different kind of truth. So de you were deeply doing very well, even if maybe on the surface not so much. I was deeply failing to dispatch an 80-year-old bowling at 3 mph off the square. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, we're going to change the subject, because that is, that is obviously, maybe it's a painful memory Could from be. all the way back to Friday. Um, Birdsong, this is, as I said, it's a 30-year-old novel now. I presume you have 
more or less not stopped talking about it to people for these last 30 years. Do you, do you go back to it? Do you read, have you read it in the last 30 years and gone, what, what was this thing? Because it's, it's a, you can't remember detail after that time, surely. Um, I, I haven't read it recently. I didn't read it for a long time, but I did read it five years ago for the 25th anniversary when I had to do an e event about it. And I was quite surprised by it um, in the sense that, and of course I remembered it, but it seemed to go at an extraordinary pace, a bit like a sort of runaway car. And I, was, I had sufficient distance from it after a quarter of a century that normally when you reread your own stuff, you're right inside it, you're urging it on and you're overlooking the bad bits because you know there's a good bit coming. And, so you don't have any objectivity, but after 25 years you do a bit. And I was uh, just struck by this sense of headlong um, motion propulsion and the sense that does this author know what he's doing at all? Um, and then you have this very slow start and then it goes, erupts into this very erotic love affair, very physically described, and then that ends abruptly, suddenly, at the end of part one. And then you're in part two with a completely different character lying underneath France, with all the world pressing on him, digging a tunnel under no man's land between two opposing armies. And you think, what on earth is going on here? What's <laughs> happened to Stephen? Where's Stephen? Where's Isabel? What's happening? Uh, We've all invested so much in these people in that first <laughs> part we, as well. The author's just dropped them. And I think it's actually quite, of, quite often in a book that you, you wonder whether the author really understands their own characters. Or, you know, put it more simply, does the author really understand what is interesting about his or her own book? And I think, weirdly, that that can actually set up quite a nice tension between the reader and the writer. And when it's revealed, I mean, Anne Tyler is very good at this, Iris Murdoch was very good at it, that it doesn't necessarily happen until quite near the end that yes they do realize that or Jane Austen that uh, she mustn't marry him no 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 she's got to marry him and when they do you think oh thank goodness they you know Jane understood her own book and uh, I think there's a I think there's quite a bit of that in Song actually the sort of sense of really really oh oh I see fine okay hang on in there I don't know how much you remember of the, the writing of that book particularly, but I wonder how much that's your experience of writing generally. Do you feel like you've got a grip on it when it's happening, or do you just trust something? I don't know what that something is, and you get to the end and it's, look it's back a, over it, your shoulder and there's a book. It's yeah. a bit of both. I mean, I, I wouldn't start a book unless I knew where it was going, unless I knew what it was about. Uh, so, I, I, to me, the most important thing about a book is the theme, the idea behind it, what's it really about. So, Birdsong is really about how far can human beings be driven before they will say, enough. Um, and that, was, that came to me from all the reading I'd read about the First World War. I kept thinking, when were they going to stop? And how many million men were going to be killed for no obvious reason? Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten million, twenty million, last man alive in Europe. When would they stop? Um, and then once you've got the sort of theme and idea in your head uh, about what it's really about, then obviously you need some sort of story to um, illustrate this. Um, and then, but this, it, it's not the detail isn't all there, so you know to put it 
rather crudely that you're, you've got to get from London to Bradford and you know that you will stop in Birmingham and you know that you will stop, you know, but you don't know the detail of everything which is going to happen in between. And I, and I think that's, that, that's the way I do it. And as, as you write the book, the characters initially are chosen as people who are capable of enacting the plot that you have for them. But then as, as you get them going and you write a bit about them, and with any luck, they take on a life of their own. And that life that they take on is not quite what you'd envisage for them. So you let them go a little bit. But if they go really you know, off the radar, you have to pull them back because they need to do something, you know, to they need pages to be in Birmingham on. at four. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They've got to be at Birmingham. There's no use. You know, they seem to be heading for Cardiff. Come on. Um, so it's, it's very much a push and pull. I mean, the whole, the whole of writing is really a push and a pull. You're, you're a dictator. You are absolutely in command of this little world that you have created. And you can make anyone do anything. But unfortunately, once you've created somebody live, you know, alive, then with any luck, they, they have a will of their own to some extent. Sounds rather fey, I know, but it, you, know, you do, I mean, in Human Traces, for instance, um, which we may come back to, uh, there's a, um, the main female character in that is called Kitty, and she is a, or one of the main female characters, she is a patient in a sanatorium, and she is, has been analysed, this is in the late 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and she's not, we've not only read a complete psychoanalysis of her, she's also been in hospital where various doctors have explored her body, her insides, her outsides. We know every part of this poor woman's mind and body, but she still hasn't actually done anything. And then it came to the scene when she's back from hospital, she's back in the sanatorium and the doctor knocks on the door and he goes in. I would no idea what she was going to say. I just thought, come on, love, <laughs> say something. And to my utter delight, she came up fighting and she was she seemed to be full of life and she had no regrets. She, didn't, she had no resentment towards the doctors who had frankly mistreated her. But I didn't really know what she was going to say. And of course, then you, when a character comes up like that for you and sort of performs for you, 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 you have a great affection for them. And you have to be... I mean, it must be an exciting moment. I mean, it's frustrating if they're trying to get to Cardiff and you want to go to Birmingham. I, I remember the story of a, uh, a writer friend who, who had plotted a book, I think, in too much detail, and the whole of the second half depended on the, first, the, 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 the two characters in the first half going to bed together, and she kind of wrote them into the bedroom, and they just refused, she said. Well, as far as that, she kind of they crossed their hands with, I'm absolutely not going to. Mm. Um, and she was both sort of proud that she'd mm. created these characters who were alive, were alive and, and had, a, had a kind of coherence that was not something she controlled. But at the same time, she had to tear up the second half of her map, you know. Yeah, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. But, I mean, there are things, there are times when uh, characters in your book have to do something which is um, out of character. Mm. Um, and I think that's fine because... No, no, no one in real life, none of our friends or family or people that we know, uh, behaves in a completely predictable way. And there are lots of people that I really love and adore, but they have this, you know, one or two really annoying things. 
And there are one or two people I really dislike, not very many, actually, a few. But you have to grant them the fact that they are quite good at this and they are quite good at uh, And I think it is possible for people who are incredibly nosy on occasion to be oblivious to something which has mm. happened. And I think if you've got a problem like that in a book, that someone who is almost always defined by her kindness and consideration uh, does something slightly offhand and cruel, it's, it's kind of fine. And I think then that sort of slight contradiction just makes, makes them more believable. So you just point it up. Mm. Don't, don't try and pretend it's all fine. Say, in, in the most uncharacteristic <laughs> moments, Mary um, brushed him aside. You know, and, uh, yes, you have a character do something, and then the other characters in the room kind of raise their eyebrows in surprise. Yeah. And you, an indication right, like Mary, yes. Yeah, right. <laughs> you said something, I, can't remember, I think it might have been in the introduction to the, the new, uh, the 30th edition, of, the 30th anniversary edition of Birdsong, you talked about um, one of the kind of impulses when you talk about wanting to write Birdsong in the first place about wanting to rethink how we remember the First World War, how we talk about the First World War, about it, it being uh, maybe not forgotten, but not, not talked about or thought about, certainly in fiction. And I wonder whether, now that we have this kind of 30-year span of your writing and other people's writing, whether you feel like we, have, we are somewhere slightly different, whether looking back at what you felt needed to be done 30 years ago, whether we are, we've come some distance. Yes, I do. Uh, in 2023, we're in a different place as far as remembering those awful events, a, a different place from where we were in 1988 when I first started thinking about it. Um, there was a big uh, you know, paradox for me, which was uh, to write a big blood and thunder straight ahead book describing the experience of having been a soldier in that war. Not all the book is about, but that's a big part of it. Uh, while at the same time recognizing that there were great poetry, there was great poetry from that war, very famous memoirs, and quite a lot of not very good novels. Uh, and that there were scholars, it was still studied in universities, uh, and there were people who still knew a lot about it. But my, my sort of bet, my gamble, was that for the average person of my age, you know, reasonably well-educated in their 30s, the memory of that war, the actual experience of what it might be like, had been blocked, uh, largely by the Second World War, which had been remembered in a very different way, mostly because of films, some very good films, The Bridge on the River Kwai, um, you know, um, A Bridge Too Far, uh, and, and lots of, of good films, and also very specifically because of the Holocaust and the way that the Holocaust was... Uh, memorialized around the world very properly. Sort of experience of what had happened 20 years before was uh, in danger of being lost or blotted out. At the same time, I, I felt I needed to introduce into Birdsong some element that was really very little known. So even if the majority of people didn't really know what life was like in the trenches, there would be some who would say, yeah, yeah, we know all that. Uh, and then I stumbled across this whole question, this whole experience of people tunnelling underground. So you have the Allied trench here and the German trench here, and then underneath there was this sort of contained inferno within an inferno, with um, people tunnelling in very narrow, very um, not at all deep tunnels, um, which was the most extraordinary thing, basically the aim being to undermine, literally undermine the enemy and blow them up, or 
else to dig a very big place where you could plant massive explosives before an attack. And I thought this is bringing something new to really no one knows about this. The engineers who made these tunnels, I, I knew had written very little about them. I mean, I spent ages in the Imperial War Museum going through um, diaries and documents and papers and so on. There, were very, there was very, very little about this. There, were like, there was one tiny book and then there was one slightly bigger book. And after that, you were just looking through, you'd just bring up, this was before uh, it had all been digitized. So I would go into this little reading room at the top of the Imperial War Museum, very badly lit. I'm sure that's why my eyes went uh, all funny. Uh, and you'd, you'd go up to the librarian and say, I want to, you know, do you have any documents about mining or tunneling? And they might come back with a, a card index this long and you'd flip through and it would say, you know, blogs J, reference to, or 1917, or Smith B, you know, reference to. But there was very little actually in this at all. Um, so I, I felt that would be a, a way of forestalling people who already knew about all, all this experience. But if you look at the great, I mean, the poets, I mean, Wilfred Owen does give a very visceral account of what it's like. Um, Sassoon and Little Less, Rosenberg, lots of good poems, poets. But the, the, the famous memoirs were all published about 10 years later, and they're all written by officers, and they have a certain distance and irony to them. And I just felt there was room for a more full-on, realistic account of what it felt like, what it tasted like, what you ate, where you slept, how, what happened if you felt ill, how did you go to the lavatory, um, uh, what happened when the guy was blown to small pieces beside you, did you just carry on, I mean, did you pick up his arm, uh, and, and, and what, this, what this meant to you. And of course, at the time that I was writing it and researching it, I was still able to talk to people who'd been there. Because in the late 80s, you had to have been over 90, but I did meet um, maybe a dozen people who'd been there. And that was very helpful to me. But what was really helpful to me was going with them to the Western Front and standing with them in the places where they had actually been. And what this gave me was a sense that I was in, in some way authorized to tell their story. If you hold the hands of a 95-year-old man and say, this is where I stood, there was the German line over there, you can still see the remains of a concrete em gun emplacement. And this is where my best friend died. It, for me, this was good because it, it took the whole thing out of a history lesson. It took it and it, it brought it back to real life. Here was this flesh and blood of this man holding my hand. And it could have been me, it could have been you, it could have been any of us if we'd been of an appropriate age. Um, and I, I was very keen that that was what the book should do, um, to, in a sense, demystify, um, make it real. It's really striking that when we get to, by the time you wrote Snow Country, which, as I said, is the second in this, this sort of loosely connected trilogy of books set in, um, in Austria at the start of the 20th century. Um, this is a book, most of which, most of the action, if you like, begins in 1914, around then. And it's a book that deals very much with the war, but it doesn't look head-on at it. It's not a trenches novel. It feels like it's about 
how you lead up to it, and it feels like how you recover from it or don't recover from it. There's a lot of damage, but the damage is often psychological. It's about psychological trauma. And I'm interested in that shift from what you felt like you needed to show 30 years ago now in Birdsong to writing a novel now. You are a slightly different writer. Our context is a slightly different context, where the, the First World War is very present in Snow Country, but you are not taking us down into the trenches for 400 pages. No. Um, well, oh. I suppose I, I think that fiction should be stories. I think they should, it, you should make stuff up. And if you make a created world and uh, you make people believe in your characters and the things which happen to them, you know, you're free to do anything. It's, you're the conductor of an orchestra. You can bring in the flutes. You can quieten the strings. You can bring in the timpani. Uh, and you have a sort of freedom to, to make the world more comprehensible, more interesting than fact. And I find pe authors who write, novelists who write what's called autofiction, I just don't really understand why you would want to do that. But, you know, that's just me. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's... To me, you can't really make a work of art like that because you don't have control over it. Um, and that's, um, that's my basic premise. But, having said which, when I got to a certain age and I look back at the books I'd written, all of which are fiction, bar The Fatal Englishman that you mentioned earlier, I began to see that they, they were about me a bit. And what they were about was my attempt to understand my life. Some of you here may have lived through that period. Um, and my dad had been in the Second World War, had been uh, wounded twice. Uh, my grandfather, who had survived the First World War um, as a soldier, was killed in the Second as a war reporter, um, ironically, really. Um, but th this was the world in which we lived, and uh, I remember the Cuban Missile Crisis and the feeling that we were all about to be blown to kingdom come. And I, but I, I was lucky enough to grow up in a very nice house, and mum and dad were very nice, and everyone said, it's all lovely, darling, and they do a bedtime story and put you to bed. But when, when I got to the age of about 12, I thought, well, this isn't that lovely. I mean, it isn't that wonderful that uh, we are about to all be exploded for no real reason other than some stupid argument between East and West. And I think, I, therefore, a lot of the books that I wrote earlier on, including Birdsong, were really about how do we get to this point? Um, you know, and explaining really to myself as much as to the readers how we got here. And I think I, very, I then sort of concluded I think I'd explained to myself how we got here. And then one of the conclusions was that uh, we as human beings were very, very odd. We're very violent creatures. I mean, really violent. And our fantastically developed consciousness and intelligence hadn't prevented us from... Here was Europe, after all, in 1914-18. We prided ourselves, Europe, on being the most civilized continent in the world. And yet here came these weapons of mass destruction, uh, the machine gun and the long-range artillery. And hey, we killed 10 million of our own Europeans with them. Hmm. You know, not many creatures would do that while at the same time Proust was writing A la recherche du temps perdu. You know, we are exceedingly odd. 
And I think, therefore, there was a shift in my mind, and then the second, a lot of the second half of the books I've written is, are about, you know, why are we like this? And, of course, I mean, in, in this country, um, the First World War gave a great big kickstart to psychological medicine insofar as examining people with shell shock um, was an extremely valuable way for, for doctors in this country to begin to understand how, how the mind worked. Um, I've now completely forgotten what the question was, but... <laughs> uh, so no, that's, that's a very good answer to the question. I might just pick up on something you said, actually, about him, but it seems to me that both, so both Human Traces, which are the first in the trilogy, and Snow Country, as you mentioned, there's, there's a kind of interest in... in so that's what medicine. it was. Why is Snow Country not about the war? It's about the way people think. That's right. It. That's it. For, yes, thank you. Very good. Um, the, both of the, the books in the trilogy are, are dealing with... with um, not just psychology, because of character psychology, but also psychological medicine and the kind of shift in these things. And there is a very clear interest in the characters you're showing in human consciousness on what are the forces that affect um, our consciousness, which seems to me... Um, I was about to ask you whether this is something you're interested in, then it occurred to me that one cannot be a novelist, presumably, and not be interested in those things. Well, that would be an odd... It would be an odd novelist who wasn't, perhaps. I can think of novelists who weren't particularly interested in human psychology. I mean, I think Martin Amos was one, oddly enough, um, who died a few weeks ago. Uh, and I think his books are very uh, rhetorical. I mean, uh, they're about language and they're about, um, they're about experience. But I, I don't think he was particularly interested in why one human being's motivations differed from another or how a childhood experience in, in, shaped them. I just don't think that... It, was of any interest to him at all. Um, but I, I think my interest was, was, is unusual in being quite medical. Um, and, you know, again, despite being not at all an autobiographical novelist, it, it does seem when I look back that I did know an awful lot of people who suffered mental ill health. Uh, my god, godmother's son, my best friend at school, uh, our next door neighbor, three people with hardwired schizophrenia who never had a life. And, you know, I was very interested in, in, in this illness and where it came from, what it meant, and, and what compassion or treatment or life was available to people who had it. And it, it is a fascinating subject, but of course, rather like war, it's, it's a very off-putting subject. I mean, you know, war is blood and mud and dirt and guts and violence is horrible. And, you know, severe mental illness is also a very off-putting and difficult thing. But, of course, you know, to a perverse guy like me, this is just a challenge <laughs> uh, to make these things interesting. And, of course, you know, there is a degree of compassion. Basically, almost everyone I knew, it seems, you know. Uh, but so and I felt terribly sorry for these people, and I wanted to try and unriddle and understand. And uh, so it's not just psychology, that's sort of, that's psychiatry as well. Um, but I think the third part of the Austrian trilogy will be less about psychiatry. And I think that I'm, I don't know, I just had an idea the other day, a friend of mine said, was talking about her family who'd come from Eastern Europe and settled in California um, as exiles from Eastern Europe for obvious reasons. And I think maybe the third part of the Austrian trilogy should be set in California, if that doesn't sound rather perverse. Uh, it's, you know, people like exiles. Well, of course, Thomas Mann, you know, left to go to um, left Vienna, to go to California, to Los Angeles. And it would have to have a sort of loose connection to 
the earlier bits. But these books like uh, The Girl at the Lion d'Or, Birdsong and Charlotte Grey, they are very loosely connected. They only, they're not sequels or anything. Uh, though there are some of the same characters in Snow Country, they're the children of the characters in, um, in Human Traces. It feels like, I mean, there's, there's a setting in common. It feels like there's a, kind of th there's a thematic evolution as well. I, I'm going to pick up on something you said a moment ago, but first I wonder if you would read a, a little bit, I don't know which one we're going to do first, would you read a little bit from Birdsong for us? Yeah. Um, she came to a cluster of buildings, too few and too scattered to be called a village or even a hamlet. She left the car and walked towards the arch. In front of it was a lawn, lush, cropped, and formal in the English style, with a gravel path between its trimmed edges. From near to, the scale of the arch became apparent. It was supported on four vast columns. It overpowered the open landscape. The size of it was compounded by its brutal modern design. Elizabeth walked up the stone steps that led to it. A man in a blue jacket was sweeping in the large space enclosed by the pillars. As she came up to the arch, Elizabeth saw with a start that it was written on. She went closer. She peered at the stone. There were names on it. Every grain of the surface had been carved with names. Their chiselled capitals rose from the level of her ankles to the height of the great arch itself. On every surface of every column, as far as her eye could see, there were names teeming, reeling, over surfaces of yards, of hundreds of yards, over furlongs of stone. She moved through the space beneath the arch where the man was sweeping. She found the other pillars identically marked, their faces obliterated on all sides by the names that were carved on them. Who are the, the lost? Men who died in this battle. No, the lost, the ones they didn't find. The others are in the cemeteries. These are just the unfound. She looked at the vault above her head and then around in panic at the endless writing as though the surface of the sky had been papered in footnotes. When she could speak again, she said, From the whole war? The man shook his head. No. Just these fields, he gestured with his arm. Elizabeth went and sat on the steps on the other side of the monument. Beneath her was a formal garden with some rows of white headstones, each with a tended plant or flower at its base, each cleaned and beautiful in the weak winter sunlight. Nobody told me. She ran her fingers with their red-painted nails back through her thick, dark hair. My God! Nobody told me. Thank you very much. There are 72,000 names on that memorial of men of whom no trace was found. Uh, there's someone with my surname on it. There's almost certainly someone with your surname on it. Um, it's, it's a remarkable place. One of the things that it, it seems to me you're always having to do uh, if you're writing a, a novel set in the past is figure out how to reconcile an individual name with those furlongs of stone, with this huge span of huge numbers of people. And that occurred to me when I was going to ask you a question when I was reading The End of Snow Country, I was thinking about optimism and hopefulness and how you end a novel in you know, Austria in the 1930s and find something, which is not the most optimistic time to write about, and find something to be hopeful about. But it occurred to me when you were talking just before the reading that you used that word uh, the word compassion. 
And it seems to me that maybe those things are connected. Maybe the place where you find something hopeful is the small scale. It's not the, the massive grand things and the fate of nations. It's the possibility of a cure for an individual, an individual person or a moment of compassion. In, in Birdsong, I, I feel like this is not a spoiler after 30 years. You have, you've had your chance to read this book. But there is, you know, there is a birth at the yeah. end. Um, and it doesn't mean everything's going to be okay, but it feels like it's the small human things that allow you still to be hopeful despite the fact that the world around is not yeah. always great. Yes, I think so. Um, you know, the fact is that the world does go on and people do make, um, uh, people do make accommodations with the difficulties, the shortness of life and its unfairness and its suffering, they do. You can't deny that there are young people in Bradford down the road who are happy and in love and going out to the pub. Maybe not Sunday night, but anyway. Uh, it does happen. And happy endings in uh, literature are considered to be rather um, naff. Um, and if you know you Except read the, by readers, yeah, yeah, <laughs> by critics possibly. We we love them. We're always very grateful. I think. But the a book the book before um, Snow Country called Paris Echo, I find it. I just found the possibility of a happy ending was just irresistible, and so a couple was going to come together, and they made it clear that they were not. This was not. They were not going to be life partners or marry, but they'd both been really unhappy. And they suddenly really liked each other as great pals. And uh, they'd been through a lot, and the book's been through a lot of very difficult stuff of Paris during the occupation and so on. And I just thought, oh gosh, you know, I'm getting old, why not? You know, let's, <laughs> let's let them be happy. I've been so mean to these people for the last 400 pages. Yeah, Give for them the a last break. 30 years of writing books with sad endings, and the same with Snow Country. I, 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 I like the end, um, and then. The, the main character, Anton, and the main female character, um, Lena, they, they do um, come together at the end, though they have been together before, though they don't know it. Well, they know it by now, they're getting to know it. Um, it, it, it amused me to think that two people could have had an encounter one night and neither would, be, neither would um, remember it, and they would meet and fall in love with each other under much better circumstances later on. Um, and then, just at the very end, um, she says um, that the, he held her in both arms and squeezed her against his chest. Lena pushed him away so she could see his eyes. And I want a child. We must have children, Anton. It's your duty. Uh, someone else said that once. Do you want to? We can have a child, Lena. More than one, if you like. Poor things. She took him by the hand and led him into the main room where she sat down and he stood in front of the fireplace, testing how long he could be apart from her. Thank you for the letter, he said. I tried to tell you before at the Schloss, but you wouldn't listen. There was something I was reading when you came to tell me. It took all my attention. And this was a letter from his former lover. I couldn't take in what you were saying. Well, you'll have to listen now, won't you? Said Lena. I know. And the letter you were reading then? It's finished, said Anton. It's a closed book at last. Giving in, he went and sat beside her on the sofa. Will you come and live with me, he said. My apartment's not as big as this, but we can get rid of some of the books. 
I'll come today. There's a second bedroom which, no, I need to be in your room. I'll help you carry your things. I only have two bags, Lena said, and tomorrow I'll go and find some work. Frau Haas said there might be something in her shop. Anton stood up again and walked over to the window. He looked down the street towards the Belvedere Gardens where a group of armed policemen was moving purposefully along the pavement. He felt Lena's hand on his sleeve and her lips against his ear. Will we be together now, she said, even after death? I believe so. You do know I'm just a little girl from the wrong side of the bridge. I do, and I know that you're more than that as well. And if it turns out that it was all a joke, said Lena, the whole thing of being alive at all, that there was no love that lasted, no life afterwards, and I die in a back ward not even knowing my own name, or I lose you to a gun, then amen. I should have stressed it was, it is 1934 in Vienna, so, you know. So it's all going to be fine. Yeah, be fine. <laughs> be fine. It's all going to be fine. I'd like to go to questions from the audience in just a moment, because we only have about 10 minutes left, but I wonder whether, I wonder how you feel about that there is going to be a third book at some point. You haven't said exactly when. These things are not connected absolutely as spared, a trilogy, as you said. If I'm spared, Daniel, if, I'm, you know, if you don't lose me to a gun. Amen to that. Um, <laughs> I wonder whether there is a bit of sort of in prospect how you feel about this. You can't not deal with the second war. Um, I suppose you could. You could skip over it entirely. But there's such a kind of drive towards that at the end of this one. Um, I wonder whether there is a kind of apprehension about not... I mean, you, of course, you can't encapsulate it, but how you even sort of make a chink in something that is so vast and has been written so much. Yeah. Um, well, that's the great thing about a loose trilogy is that these are not sequels. So, you know, Human Traces covers from about 1880 to about 1925, um, and Snow Country covers from about 1900 to 1934. So logically, you're right, it should cover from about 25 to 50, but it's not going to. Um, I've, I can't do Nazis. Uh, I've, I've done a bit in Charlotte Grey, um, and um, I'm not going to do that. I'm quite interested in, I went to Berlin, for, for our um, 30th wedding anniversary. Was it the 25th? 25th, I think. And uh, we went, to, we did very much the sort of Cold War, not the Second World War. You can't get much Second World War from in Berlin because they don't want people to remember it in case Hitler's bunker becomes a shrine or something horrible. And there was this amazing listening station in, uh, outside West Berlin which was built on the rubble of the, uh, of the buildings that had been bombed in Berlin. And they built this great big hill from rubble on which the Americans built a listening station where they would intercept signals coming from Moscow to East Berlin. And as a sort of symbol of utter, utter human stupidity and futility, it's, it's very attractive to write about. But it's also kind of depressing. But, don't worry, no flying saucers, it's not sci-fi, no little green men. Uh, it's set very slightly in the future because it concerns something which happens in a fertility, fertility laboratory. And I, it's slightly more feasible in a few years' time. It's perfectly feasible now, but it will be more feasible in five years' time. And it's a way of looking at something that interests me a lot, which is spinning out of everything we've been talking about 
uh, about the weirdness of, of us, modern human beings. We are the last of the human species left. So it's rather as if uh, the only dog left in the world was a chihuahua. How representative is that of the dog species? Um, we are extremely weird and we could so easily have been otherwise and in some ways better. Did we need a cathedral? Did we need Mozart, Shakespeare? Did we need birdsong? Uh, we could have rubbed along much better with other species on this planet. We might not have burned it up. It was only little kinks and chances of evolution that led to the amazing and inexplicable rise of consciousness in our brains and everything that flowed from it. So the seventh sun is, is about that, but it's short, it's pacey, it's funny, <laughs> and you're going to love it. <laughs> but you can't buy it yet. So we're going to stop selling it to you, because really you can't buy it. But you can pre-order a copy, of course. Um, I'd like to take some questions from you, since you're all uh, here. You very kindly come along. Would anyone like to just give us a wave, and we'll take a question uh, from you. When you read that wonderful piece about the, um, with the inscriptions at Nibapum, it reminded me the 1st of June, I think it was, 1916, Bradford lost a huge percentage of its young men in the Battle of the Somme something I read about relatively recently. And it was shocking. I'm not sure what the question is, I'm sorry. It was shocking to me to realise how much of an impact that, I think it was an hour or two, had on the future of Bradford. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Bradford was, I think, typical of, of many towns and cities and villages uh, around uh, Britain. Uh, and, and, and abroad, you know, the, the, what was then called the Empire. I mean, Newfoundland uh, lost something like 90% of its young men in the space of half an hour. Uh, and it did shape, uh, I think the best summary of it, uh, that, I mean, I, obviously I've tried to give a sense of what it felt like. Um, 30,000 casualties, 40,000 I think, on, on July the 1st, 1916. John Keegan, who was a military historian uh, at Sandhurst and, and not a sentimentalist at all, you know, a military man. And he said the Battle of the Somme marked the end of a period of vital optimism in British life that has never been recovered. Pretty sad. Um, but there's the sense that it wasn't a few people, it wasn't just one group of people, it wasn't just one place. Absolutely everybody was somehow impacted by this thing. I don't, I mean, I think there was no family in this country that didn't either not suffered a loss or was close to a family who had um, about a million, if, about a million British and uh, Commonwealth um, men died. Um, and it was, it was the first war that had been fought not by professional soldiers or by mercenaries. I mean, the Battle of Waterloo, most of Wellington soldiers were not even British. Um, but this was a war that was fought by your father, your brother, your son, your schoolmate. And that, I think, was what set it apart. Thank you. Question just there. And then we'll take the last one here in the second row. Uh, from, from the comments that, that have been made, uh, it sounds as though the third part of the, the, the Austrian trilogy of, um, is 
going to be uh, at least started in the 50s. And, and you know, on the, the, the psychiatry thing, of course, the 50s was the era when chlorpromazine was developed and psychiatry started to move away from psychoanalysis and, and therapy and into what it is now, which is basically diagnosing and prescribing tablets. Um, and I wondered whether you would you had any thoughts on that and whether you would actually deal with any of that in, in the trilogy. I haven't uh, far enough into planning uh, the third book yet. Um, but you're right. I mean, this was the big era of medical discovery moving into um, chemical treatments. But uh, I think we're sort of now moving past and out of that. In, I mean, a book I reviewed actually in the Sunday Times not long ago uh, says that all this has been driven by drug companies rather than by uh, proper diagnosis. And that quite soon the American psychiatric establishment is going to ditch basically all its diagnostic categories and that human beings will just simply be rated on a scale of uh, naught to 100 from, I mean, I'm probably seven. Uh, and someone who spends, some poor person who spends their whole life in an institution might be a 90. But I think to sort of putting names and tags and descriptions is increasingly um, controversial and, and unhelpful, actually. Thank you. We'll take a last question here in the second, uh, second row. You just wait for the microphone to get to you so that people at the back can hear. Thank you. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about Enderby. I, I thought Enderby was the best book of, of the ones I've read of yours. I, I thought it was very much the best book. But I also found him a very disturbing character, and I just wonder how you developed that character. He just came out of nowhere one day, and I was uh, in that stage between sleep and wakefulness, uh, when quite often you hear lovely music, or you imagine you've composed it yourself, or beautiful poetry, which it just sort of flows through your mind. Uh, but sadly, I didn't have any beautiful poetry throwing, flowing through my mind that morning. I had this voice which said, my name is Mike Engleby, and I'm in my second year at an ancient university. And there was something slightly off key about this voice, and it was slightly like a radio that's not tuned to the right station. And I let him go on, because I thought this is interesting. Uh, I didn't try and write it down, because if you write something down, you're too awake and the, the voice stops. But when I got to the desk later that day, I found I could remember about half a page worth of stuff. And then I thought, I don't know where this is going. And as I was saying to Danny earlier on, I'd like to sort of have the idea first and then the plot. And blah, blah, blah. I have no idea where this is going, but I just, every morning I went back to the desk and I was able to dial in and take dictation from this voice. I mean, not literally, not in a psychotic way, but um, thank God. Um, and about halfway through the book, I realized what had happened. He's the same age as me, and he has some of the same experiences as me. So again, going back to talking about whether you write about your own life or not. But I, I felt that I was completely insulated from him. He was parallel. He was like my wicked twin, my alter ego, whatever you want to call it. He was Mr. Hyde to my Dr. Jekyll or whatever it was. And although he is a truly ghastly person, <laughs> um, he is also kind of entertaining, I think. And I remember a friend of mine, 
afterwards saying, and when we discover about two thirds of the way through, three quarters of the way through what Mike Engleby has done, I felt so angry with you because I, I liked this guy and I fed you, felt you led me on and betrayed me. And I said, yeah, I'm sorry about that. And she said, don't worry, I still liked him. It's quite worrying, actually. Yeah, I know. Anyway, we're, not going I, to, we're not going to look into that. Too. No, well, all, it show, all it shows you is that you have different standards for judging characters in books. In real life, we, we try to have some sort of moral standards and to judge people for, you know, whether they're kind and thoughtful and good family people and good friends and, and so on. But in books, all you want is interest. That's the only standard by which you judge a character. Am I interested? Um, on that note, I'm sorry to say we are going to have to stop there because it is just gone, has just gone seven o'clock. Please join me in thanking Sebastian for a really interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you.